Welcome to Healthy Conversations, an eHealthSpace.org podcast. This week we talk with Dr. Christine Bennett, Chief Medical Officer at MBF. In this week's podcast, we discuss health reform, the personally controlled electronic health care record, and the challenges facing the private health insurance sector. Dr. Bennett has over 25 years in clinical care, strategic planning, and senior management. And prior to joining MBF, was Chief Executive of Research Australia. Christine Bennett, thanks for joining us. Now, you've just been appointed as Dean of Medicine, Sydney, at University of Notre Dame. What's behind that? Well, I was very excited to have been approached by Notre Dame to become the Dean here in Sydney because this is a new school. It's going to have its first graduate year this year. And uh, there was an opportunity for a new dean to come in and really help shape that and shape the future of, of University of Notre Dame Sydney campus. So, um, you know, after thinking about it for a little while, I thought, you know, this would be a fabulous opportunity and one where I could really make a difference to the future of health by getting involved in medical education. Yeah, you're really getting in there at the, at the ground level, aren't you? Uh, you? You'd be quite aware of all of the issues uh, as far as what it takes to, to create a, a great campus environment from having you know, seen the other uh, campuses and the other universities. Were you thinking about joining any other universities? Uh, look, you know, I was very uh, focused on what I was doing at Bupa and um, building a chronic disease management business and health and wellbeing business. It was really Notre Dame's approach to me that excited me about the opportunity to become Dean here. And also, of course, my work with the National Health and Hospitals Reform Commission had really underlined that health workforce and training doctors and nurses and other health professionals is a huge issue for the future of our health system here in Australia. Mm. So a great opportunity for me to make a difference from the front line. Indeed. Well, um, so then we'll tell us a bit more about what you're hoping to achieve there, um, given that it is the early stages. Are there um, particular gaps that you can see in terms of how we train our doctors and nurses, for example? Well, I think all institutions are struggling with the need to get better clinical exposure and there's a lot of new doctors, a lot of new nurses, a lot of other health professionals out in our health services needing training and education. So I think that's a a challenge for everyone, but it's incredibly important that we open up across different sorts of settings in primary care and community and aged care and in the rural settings to uh, train the doctors and nurses and other professionals of the future. So that's one big challenge is actually getting the clinical placements for students. But for me, coming to this role, there are four things that I'm really hoping that the University of Notre Dame Australia will stand for. And one is that we want young doctors that are also very well trained in health and well-being as well as pathology and disease so that we really know what helps someone keep healthy and have a very strong emotional and mental well-being as well. And also that that doctors are trained to really be part effectively of a multidisciplinary team and very much respecting that people themselves, patients, have a very key role in their health decisions. So it's my second main theme. My third thing that I really would like to emphasise here is that medicine is a vocation that you have the opportunity to actually give to those in greatest need. So in your medical career, um, however it shapes, to actually give something back to those in the community with a sort of sense of social justice and social equity. And finally, research, because To me, you are learning how to learn in whatever degree you do and it's incredibly important in medicine to be at the leading edge 
And if you want to critically appraise new research and new findings, you need to be able to understand that methodology and look at it critically. And so having an involvement in research from your undergraduate years through to um, when you're actually practising is incredibly important, I think, to the quality and the creation as well as the application of new knowledge. Wow, okay. So that sounds like a very good but uh, broad um, set of things that you'd like to tackle. We're seeing in the industry, perhaps from a, a broader perspective, an increasing role of technology that's changing the way that we think about the health profession. And particularly for young doctors who are you know, learning how to not only understand the, the health side of things, they're also having to deal with a whole range of new technologies. But if we could just start with e-learning as, as one example, how will you start thinking about incorporating that into the training programs? Well, uh, obviously with a focus also on rural and remote practice and training and uh, University of Notre Dame Australia here in Sydney and indeed in Fremantle have rural clinical schools. And so e-learning and uh, you know, telemedicine and those sorts of connections are, are incredible opportunities to um, strengthen the outreach of, of learning as well as to capture it and to be able to view it again uh, at a student's convenience if they're wanting to check a, check a point or emphasise something or just to refresh. So there's a lot of opportunities there, obviously. So um, And I think that's something University of Notre Dame's already focusing on. Mm. And another one, of course, too, is uh, is social media. Have you given much thought to that? I know that a lot of doctors are thinking about how they, for example, update their Facebook status. It's, it's, it's one thing to have a social life, but to be, you know, obviously you can't go talking about your patients. These are some of the, the issues that uh, we're having to deal with uh, at an education level too, aren't we? Well, I think our whole society is learning how to best use these opportunities like Facebook or Twitting or Tweeting or <laughs> even email, frankly, you know, it's important that we use these technologies to enable rather than to drive our lives. And so, you know, I think people need to recognise when they put things on um, their Facebook or they send out a public Twitter, then they've, they've got to recognise they really are putting that out there for posterity and everyone will view it. So you need to face those sorts of communications with the same sort of professionalism that you would if you were speaking to someone face-to-face. So I think that's a bit of a learning curve for our health society, not just uh, for academia. Indeed. Well, look, on another issue, um, you've been quite vocal in advocating for more medical research dollars. And we often hear quite a bit about this from universities and probably rightly so. But how can we achieve better research outcomes and, you know, use that as a way to support this funding argument? Well, look, you know, research, I have a very broad definition of health and medical research. I consider, uh, obviously, the basic sciences, discovery research, as well as invention of devices, but also health services research, health policy research, applied clinical research. And I think there's a real opportunity here in Australia that isn't being capitalised on to pull together some of our major data sources and to actually drill down into those in a de-identified way. This is not an issue of privacy concern. This is an issue of using the knowledge, the data that we have to strengthen and improve our health system. And I, I do think it's a, a gap in Australia that the science of healthcare, the actual looking at the data of trends, of unwarranted variation, of clinical practice differences, is simply not happening because the data is not linked and not available. Mm. 
And so this is about, yes, it is about investment in building capacity, but it's also recognising that there are different sorts of research that can strengthen our health and our health care. Mm. So can you give me some more, more examples of how you'd put that into practice? Well, at the moment, uh, we, we as a country collect about 7,000 clinical and health indicators, uh, most of which are reported on, very few of which are actually utilised in any effective way. I think that we need to link sources such as the MBS, the PPS, public and private hospitals data, de-identify it and allow researchers to actually look at patterns of health services use. So are the rates of certain procedures equivalent in different geographic locations? And if they're not, what, what is driving that difference? Uh, it may be around outcomes. It may be around length of rehabilitation. It may be around duplication of tests and waste in our system. There are many things that that data could uh, be used to uh, to explore. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it's one of those areas where I think in some ways we're flying blind as a nation because we aren't even using the data that is already collected. And whilst there's a lot of talk about and, and action on publicly releasing the data on quality and outcomes from various institutions and health service providers, which is a good thing about in a transparent system. But we really should be feeding that data back to clinicians themselves so that they actually can act on what, uh, how they're actually trending. Um, and, and, you know, I think if you're going to publicly report, you should make sure that that data is effectively getting back to the people who can make the biggest difference, which is practicing clinicians themselves. Mm. So a couple of ideas there, Mark. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a really interesting kind of scenario that you're painting there because we've obviously got data sources with the government and then all of the, the private institutions and hospitals and uh, different healthcare service providers around the country. So you're talking about a very large problem. What sort of um, techniques or approach, how could we try and find a, a consensus? Does it have to be legislation that essentially forces these data sources to be opened up so that qualified, approved researchers can, can gain access to the information? Look, I think this is something that needs to evolve over time. As I've mentioned, those particular MBS, PBS, public and private hospital data, they already exist. They are in separate uh, repositories. They could be linked. Um, there is a small cost, but a very small cost to linking those, de-identifying those and keeping them secure and it is something where um, researchers we could be validated, could be uh, screened, obviously, and the purposes for which that data is used have appropriate ethical and scientific scrutiny. But at the same time, that it just isn't happening, and part of it is because of the structure of the health system, and part of it is that people are very concerned that they'll stimulate concerns around privacy and confidentiality. And I think we need to have a conversation with the community about this because this is not about identified data. This is about anonymous data that can be used by uh, researchers to, to really understand what's going in our, on in our health system and understand where the waste is, understand where inequities are and really help plan a better service to the communities mm. around Australia. Yeah, and it doesn't sound like that will be a short process either. But it's actually relatively simple. This is not impossible. In fact, the data has been linked for various research purposes, including um, some fairly comprehensive work in Western Australia. The Department of Veterans Affairs has excellent um, collected data. It's all very protected and secure. 
you know, there, there are examples of this. It's just that we've been loath to make this um, a part of the health services, health policy research environment. And it will take a national decision to open that up. And just, just with your health insurer's hat on, given the experience in that industry that you've had for many years, what impact would this sort of research have on, on insurance? We, we would all like to think as, um, as people who uh, receive health care that perhaps our premiums might fall as a result of this kind of, uh, <laughs> this kind of research, but uh, that might be wishful thinking. I don't know. Well, look, I think waste in a health system, whether it's in the public sector or the private sector, where there's repeated tests or avoidable hospitalisations or clinical pathways where people are being referred from person to person when they're, you know, a different line of referral may have had definitive care earlier, uh, where we can see the impact of getting easier access to subacute care and um, supported care in the community, they reduce our hospitalisations, where chronic disease management programs and better coordinated care lead to lower hospitalisations. There's lots of opportunities, but I think that in some ways the private sector and private health insurers are already doing some of this within the limited data that they have for the purposes of getting better health care and better health outcomes. Hmm. And uh, and reducing waste and cost. Well, you know, and and at this point, I think it's only logical we should talk about the uh, the e health agenda. And uh, I know that in its current format, where we do have a narrow, uh, fairly narrow definition of of what um, it will look like in the early stages, particularly if I'm thinking about the PCEHR, because we're talking about shared records and not getting into the some of the detail you've spoken about. But um, how do you think um, that e health agenda will 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 serve? some of these uh, broader goals that you've been speaking about? Well, the person-controlled electronic health record was a proposal that we focused on in my um, commission's report because it is not only an enabler of more more coordinated uh, care, reducing duplication, providing verifiable sources to the results, the diagnostic results and treatment previously that a person might have had, reducing waste and and um, uh, person's time in having to repeat their history four or five times. Uh, there are those benefits, but there is another benefit, which is that if being a person-controlled electronic health record, you as an individual or as a parent would have the information most important to you and your family in their health, which is their own health information. And at the moment, there. Uh, people, you know, may have a cardboard box in the bottom of their cupboard or the drawer in the in the desk at home, um, but that only probably has a fraction of the health information they need to pass on to a health professional that they might next see. So it changes the power base. It's a paradigm shift, really, and I think you know the single most important enabler of person-centred care that a person themselves has access to their own health uh, information and can share that with health professionals as they see fit. So although uh, it is certainly not the whole story, Mark, at all, it is a very important, I think, reformative agent in not only how e-health works, but how we approach uh, healthcare by having more empowered, more involved uh, health consumers. Hmm. And, and are you watching some of these trial sites closely? Yes, well, there's the early three sites I'm quite aware of because you know, I've talked to them on a number of occasions and those GP network sites are, are fantastic uh, and going to be very innovative. 
the second round is only just uh, being planned as we speak. But this process of, of waves of pilot sites are sort of a stimulus. I'm sure there's a lot of other activity that will be going on beyond those pilot sites as well. And, you know, heading towards the deadline of, of July 2012, which was the deadline that uh, we suggested in our report and the government continues to focus on that as a date by which all Australians could register for a record. So, um, you know, I guess it's important to keep uh, keep that line in the sand and keep everybody focused on getting the building blocks in place so that that will be possible. Yeah, I agree. Now, one of the, the criticisms from overseas, um, or at least people in Australia looking at overseas examples, have been saying, well, you know, we don't have any comparable examples of, of how this has worked or not worked. Um, that may or may not be the case, but we are looking at these uh, first and second wave sites as in, in essence, our own internal case studies, aren't we, from a national perspective? Is that um, the best way to see them in, in that context? Look, you know, as you said, the person-controlled electronic record isn't the whole story. You obviously need electronic systems in the provider world as well. You need hospitals, optometrists, GPs, uh, chiropractors, pharmacy, uh, pathology. You need all of those back-end systems feeding into these summary records uh, around a person and and the information they need. So there's a lot of other work to be done to even make a person-controlled electronic health record possible. And so it it is a stimulus, if you like, to uh, all the other effort that needs to happen. One thing I did find when I was travelling around with the Commission were little pockets of this actually happening, whether it was in a GP service or whether it was... Uh, in the Northern Territory. And usually it was a shared record only accessed by health professionals. But to open it up to the patient themselves, I think is going to be an even more powerful tool because people will become more informed, involved in their, their health decisions and self-management, particularly with chronic disease, uh, in, a, in a very constructive way. Mm, I agree. Well- and we may be leading the way in this one, Mark, because I think we'll be doing it differently and better than many other countries. Well, look, you know, maybe this is the modern health version of the Victor Lawnmower or something. Yes, or the uh, Hill Twist. <laughs> there we go. One of my favourites. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we, we, we have a precedent for this, so we shouldn't be scared. I did want to ask you about an, another topic just before we, we finish up. And there's been uh, some talk uh, recently about uh, the move to out-of-hospital care. And, and I'm interested in your thoughts on that, particularly how insurers are working um, with that issue and uh, and perhaps you know as an industry how do we need to be thinking in the future about how do we look after people once they've they've left uh, you know the, the hospitals themselves because technologies in in many cases are enabling better out of hospital care aren't they yes look uh, this was one of the major take home messages of my uh, national health and hospitals reform commission report that we do indeed have pressure on our public hospitals but the solution to that pressure lay largely outside hospitals. So both improving uh, primary care and community-based specialist care that can keep someone well or manage their condition outside hospital, uh, or indeed uh, to have an earlier discharge from hospital to perhaps a hospital in the home situation or a rehabilitation uh, or a palliative care situation that is based either in the community or in the home. Now, the important thing here, though, is that you can build more services out of hospitals, but they do need to be 
organised with and coordinated within hospital services to get the most effective outcome. And there's a, a lot of um, uh, evidence of that through research of integrated care around the world. So, you know, in what we're doing in Australia in building primary health care, that is a good thing. But we need to build that primary health care and indeed community-based specialist care, whether that's in mental health or, or other services that we might commonly think of being in the community, or whether indeed it's about cardiac and cancer care in the community and care for diabetes. But we need to actually connect that with, organise it, coordinate it with hospitals, not just have a patient moving from one silo to another silo of the system. Mm. Otherwise, all we'll find is we'll have more community care and more hospital care, and uh, we won't find the, the efficiency and the better service for our customers unless we link it properly. And so, uh, you know, IT and e-health, that personal health record, telehealth, using electronic discharge mechanisms, possibly online consultations or other um, sort of referral mechanisms, uh, finding the right provider, uh, as well as feeding back on the quality of provision. There's a lot of things that can help link up and coordinate that care. And I can imagine one of the ways forward would be to make sure we have the resources available within the hospitals to look after the people once they've left the hospital to, to move to that other form of care. In other words, uh, you know, more resources for the hospital system to deal with, in effect, those, those patients who are outside of their four walls. Is, is that a, a fair approach, do you think? You know, I'm going to say something unpopular here. There has been a need for some strengthening of hospital resources, no question about that, and I think to some extent that has been happening. But if we keep pouring the resources into the hospitals, we won't actually build out those out-of-hospital services. And I believe from the review that we did that 10 to 20% of people who are in hospital beds right now could be better cared for in the community or in a subacute facility or in their home or in an aged care facility and I open up that capacity within that hospital. Uh, so, you know, really it is about the system being rebalanced and the care being connected. So if we just go for the Band-Aid of more hospital beds and more hospital resources, we will actually not change the balance of the health system and, you know, this will be not as good for continuity of care, for patient experience or indeed for the costs of health care. So hopefully we will take a different view as we start strengthening these external health services and linking them to hospitals and not just bring the currency of the health system back always to bed. Mm. And, and what's your sense of that, um, that happening from a funding perspective? We're actually you know, on budget eve as we record this, uh, this, this show. Well, I think uh, you know, it's, it's something that we've got to take one step at a time. I think that there has been some investment over the last year or two from the federal government and with the state on increasing hospital beds and indeed subacute service budgets. I think there are some specific areas like mental health that may, may get attention and needs more attention as one of the major health issues where people, probably only about a third of people are accessing the care that they need. I think that as primary health care is strengthened, it's through you know additional investment by the Commonwealth along with new organisational structures like Medicare Locals that we need to make sure that that is linked with and part of integrated care with a hospital and not something that's just happening on its own out in the community. And we need actually a systemic structural element that brings hospitals and Medicare locals 
working closely together, I would suggest local health networks actually be members of a local Medicare local. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've got some of the building blocks there. It's now a matter of us all uh, working together, particularly in our local areas, to make sure that that care is um, connected up for for patients. Absolutely. Well, look, just finally, a question back to yourself. I note that uh, in addition to joining the University of Notre Dame, you're going to continue a lot of other work. Uh, three non-executive appointments at Bupa and uh, strategic health advisor to PwC and non-executive director at Heartwave and Obesity Australia and the chair of Research Australia. I'm just wondering, is sleep an overrated idea for you? Or Yes. Uh, sadly, my family <laughs> could probably commentate on this better than myself, but I've, I've always done many things, and I think you know the University of Notre Dame has been very welcoming of my external activities. Uh, I think it's part of our students, in fact, seeing what you can do and how you can contribute with a medical degree. I have got a fairly big appetite for work, and look, there's so many really important things to be done. And if my involvement in sometimes a more of a light touch way, and in other times quite a passionate and involved way can help, then, you know, I, I do like to try and have a fairly diverse portfolio and, you know, very proud of all of those roles. And it, to be honest, it also brings me a real balance and diversity of view, which was one of the great things when I was doing the commission work, that I really do understand so many different elements of the health system. Mm. And that sort of level of understanding um, is, is really important to finding solutions. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons I raise it is uh, clearly if you're that involved, you you must care deeply and passionately about the sector. Could you in, in very briefly describe what it is, what's the, the passion or the drive that you have that you, you continue to be so in, deeply involved? Well, I think that health is important to all of us as individuals and as members of families and as parents uh, and in the community, even as an employer. Health is really important to people and I'm passionate about that fact that health is about more than health care. It is about how we live our lives. Um, it is about how we bring up our children. Uh, it's about our social structures. It's about how we communicate with each other. It's about a sense of purpose and social justice. So all of those things are, are important to me. When it comes to health care, I just absolutely believe we need to put people, the patient centre in our thinking and you know in the 35 years I've been in health I've watched various vested interests pulling in different directions and if we all just stop for a minute and look at that common ground of people their health as individuals or indeed the value they're getting as taxpayers and we stop I'm always amazed at how we can get onto that that uh, same page and make really wonderful things happen so I, you know, I'm hoping that I'm contributing to the health of not only this generation, but my children and their children and setting up systems and structures and research and other activities that will will have a lasting impact. So um, it's a vocation. (laughs) Indeed. Well, that's a great note on which to end. So Dr. Christine Bennett, thank you for your time today and all the best with the new appointment and all of the other activities that are keeping you busy. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for joining us on Healthy Conversations. Check us out on the web where you can also join the conversation or leave a comment on today's show. You'll find us at ehealthspace.org slash multimedia or search for eHealthSpace on the iTunes store.